there are moments in worship when we're singing and it's like our hearts are declaring out these truths, truths about Jesus that are so rich for me. And this morning, even as we come into this text where we're talking about fear, um, singing that last song for me was just really special. And I think that we are living in a season where it seems as though instead of being captivated by Jesus, people find themselves captivated by fear. And, uh, and so Jesus kind of hits the nail on the head in this passage. And so if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 24 through 23, if you, uh, 24 through 33, sorry, we're not working backwards this morning. Um, but if you're new with us this morning, we've been reading through the book of Matthew, and we get to this text this morning uh, where Jesus is talking again in relation to persecution as he's challenging his disciples. He's telling them to fear not. Last week, uh, we tried to go through verse 25, and I just felt like it was a little bit rushed. And so as we look at verses 26 through 33 specifically this morning, um, one of the first words that you're going to see as you come into verse 26 there is this word, so, uh, which in some translations says, therefore, which means that it was actually tied to or connected with, directly tied to, this previous statement. And so I thought we'd go back a couple of verses and look at the end of what we talked about last week and then move into this passage this morning in verses 26 through 33. Um, there's this expression that you see over and over again in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this expression is, fear not, or the words, do not be afraid. In the Gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, fear not mostly appears in the book of Matthew, and it appears in the book of Luke. Uh, it's used by Jesus three times in the book of Matthew, and it's used by Jesus five times in the book of Luke. And what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is the three times that they appear, they appear in the same passage. Like as we read this passage this morning, I want you to highlight these three occurrences of this phrase as we read through chapter 10, verses 24 through 33. So let me pray, and then let's get to it. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship and song this morning as we did. I thank you for the encouragement that it brings to my soul and my spirit. I thank you, Jesus, that we get to gather as a body connected only by Jesus. We come from all different tribes and tongues and all kinds of backgrounds and everything, God, but this morning we come under one roof, one banner, and that's Jesus, and I thank you that you bind us all together, even though we all think, act, come from so many different backgrounds and talk so many different ways and see things so differently. God, we thank you that you are the binding agent. We ask that your spirit would be so present here this morning, God, because I know that I'm not capable enough of communicating this well, that your spirit has to go before me and do the hard work of actually opening people's hearts. And as we talk about fear this morning, I also realize, Jesus, that there are so many that are here this morning whose hearts are literally captivated by fear. Even as they sit here this morning, their heart is pounding. They feel just like their heart's being squeezed out, Lord, and, and it's sort of like they're in bondage. And I'm praying this morning, God, that there would be a freedom in this place that could only come by way of your spirit, that you would just grant us the opportunity to step into that freedom this morning. And so we give you this time, Jesus, and we pray that you just seal this time with your spirit by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. It says this, Matthew 10, starting at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be 
like his teacher and the servant like his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Interesting passage. Another kind of hard passage. Uh, In this passage, Jesus speaks of these three kinds of fear. He first says in verse 26 to his disciples, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So what does this mean? And so in order to understand this sentence, like I was saying before, we have to take the cue from the word so and then see what this is connected to. What's this therefore connected to? And so if we go up to the previous sentence, Jesus says this again, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so Jesus gives this warning. Since you're going to be my disciples and you're going to follow me because they attack me, they're also going to attack you. And so you have to expect that they're going to say bad things about you in the same way that they were saying bad things about Jesus. And when Jesus was casting out demons by the power of God, his enemies said what? They said he's doing that by the power of the devil. Beelzebul is what they say. And I sat for a bit this week and I was contemplating 2020. Has anybody had the bravery or the courage to sit and do that? And I was sitting and I was thinking about 2020. I'm not sure if it was a good idea or a bad idea. But as I sat to think about it, uh, I had a thought. As a pastor, do you know what one of the most difficult parts about this year was? It's COVID-related, but it is not COVID. It wasn't quarantine. It wasn't shifting school schedules. It wasn't wearing a mask. It wasn't politics. It wasn't the election. It wasn't even watching the things that were being hurled at the church from the outside of the church because the Lord knows that there was a ton of that in this past year. It was actually watching the way that Christians have treated Christians. That's been the hardest thing for me as a pastor this year. It was watching division in the church globally. It was watching Christians literally set Jesus aside when it comes to their relationship with others and basically do what they wanted and allow their feelings and their fears to be the gods that they serve. And that's been painful. I've seen more relational carnage in the body of Christ this year than any other year in my life. 
And, and that to me is much worse than COVID because the consequences of sinful behavior in the church are much more potent than the sting of COVID. And, and I had been so hopeful that the body of Christ would rally and support each other more than she ever has, but instead it's turned into finger pointing and relational discord. And I say all of that for this reason. What, what is Jesus saying when he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that a follower of Jesus should very well be ready to experience hardship in their lives. That, that if a follower of Jesus is not above their teacher, and, and the purpose is for a follower to actually be like their teacher, then what is it that we should be prepared for? We should be prepared to experience what our teacher, what our master experienced. And what was that? Well, Jesus goes on to say, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they align those of his household? And here's what trips me out. Is that the Pharisees often get a bad rap, right? We often talk about them as borderline demonic. And who were they? Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the, the religious elite of Jesus' day. They, they were the ones trying their best to enforce every jot and tittle of the Mosaic law. They were the hyper-religious of Jesus' time. They actually had a deep love for Jehovah, like the God, but they could not see Jesus for who he was, which meant that they could not listen to what Jesus said because they couldn't see past their religious construct to actually see the Son of God standing before their very eyes. And I say all of that for this. You fast forward to Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is brought this demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. Crazy combo, right? Demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And it says that Jesus heals this man. And the crowds go crazy and they begin to accuse Jesus of casting demons out of a man through the, through the power of Beelzebul, who in the Old Testament is known as Beelzebub, the, the god of the Philistines, the, the prince of demons, or Satan himself. And interestingly enough, who is it that accuses Jesus of healing this man and delivering him from the demons by the power of Satan? It's not a random crowd, it's the Pharisees. Pharisees are the ones pointing the finger, accusing Jesus of moving in the power of Satan. It's the hyper-religious Jews that are the ones who give Jesus the most opposition. And as I thought about this this week, I contemplated the fact that Christians have been the most hurtful to Christians this year. That, that, I, I mean, the, the world out there, we can expect them to hate us, right? I, I can expect the world to not see like me. But what about when the people you thought cared most begin to be the ones that hurl the insults at you? And Jesus simply said, if they've called me the prince of demons, why wouldn't you think that, they would, that, that you, as followers of Jesus, would actually face that opposition as well? Because ultimately, opposition, when we're, talking, when we're taking a stand for Jesus, isn't against us as individuals. Who's it actually against? It's about the Spirit of God in us. The opposition against is, is against Jesus. It's about, it's against what we represent. 
And he says, no disciple is above his master. That if, the G, if Jesus suffered persecution, so will his followers. And all that he is and all that he stands for is what we are and what we stand for. And therefore, whatever caused men to persecute Jesus will also cause men to persecute us. And then comes this word of encouragement from Jesus in verse 26. He says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. So he goes on to say, do not fear those who persecute you because the truth will someday come out. It will be known. God will reveal the truth on the day of judgment, if not before then. All the talk, all the abuse, the false accusations, the the lies, the mistreatments that are inflicted upon believers will actually be handled by Jesus Christ, and we can rest assured in that. And the day is coming when truth will be made known. The things in the dark will come to light. The, The secrets of all men will be stripped and unveiled for all to see. And if we have confidence that God will be the one who actually will reveal the truth, and if we have faith that God will do this, then we will not fear what the opposition says against us. Many followers of Jesus have have suffered the the damage of their character and their reputations by men. And, And we aren't to fear those persecutors because we will be vindicated by the Lord. And what's hidden in the hearts and the lives of men is known by God. If, if what was said about us was false, then we can be assured that God will one day restore our reputation, amen? That, that God will one day restore our character and, and see to it that we have the praise of God. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart so that we receive the praises of God. In, in verse 27, Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And so for the disciples, Jesus had been showing and telling them things in secret and then asking them to not say anything, like, don't tell anybody that I said this, don't tell anybody that I did this. And now Jesus is telling them that they will be the ones to begin to proclaim this message. And not just in close, intimate circles of friends, but actually on the tops of houses to the city. You want to see intense persecution happen? Wait until they start proclaiming the truths that Jesus told them about his Messiahship. Because at this point, discipleship was fairly easy for these guys, wasn't it? What, what have they had to give up or do at this point? Nothing. And I think many of us agree to follow Jesus fairly easily up front. Most of us in this room have probably professed to follow Jesus. Not really expecting to, one, have to proclaim much. And two, not really expecting to have to face any persecution. And Jesus is reiterating to his disciples that this will be what they do. That they will be the megaphones for the message of God. And if you've decided to follow Jesus and think that you can play it safe, there's no such followership out there. There's no such thing as safely following Jesus. Nothing in life that's worth anything of significant doesn't cost you something. And in our case, it has the potential of costing us our reputation. It has the potential of costing us potentially our lives. 
But then Jesus shifts into the second kind of fear in verse 28. The, the first fear was that of persecution and insults. He says, don't fear them. But then Jesus seems to ramp it up a bit in verse 28 with another fear not statement. And so he confronts the fear of death. And Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I realize for some of you, this is a harsh statement. But man's power is limited. It's limited. The worst that man can do is kill your body, can take your body. Man does, does not wield the power or the divinity to actually touch a person's soul. Man can only separate us from the world. Man cannot separate us from life. And so we should remember that believers have eternal life, that we've already passed from death to life, and we're, on, we're in this process of living forever. Like John chapter 5, 24 says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, that you skip past that part because of Jesus. And so we have this eternal life in the sense that our life has been transferred from this world, this physical dimension, into the next world, the heavenly dimension, the spiritual dimension. And there's only one remedy to keep us from fearing men who threaten our life. There's one. Anybody guess who that is? It's God. It's Jesus. God is to be feared much more than man because God has the power to actually destroy us, body and soul. So the contrast is between this total and final destruction in hell and this limited sort of nature of merely physical death. And the argument is this, that compared with the fate which awaits the unbeliever, physical death is a far less fearful option. To lose your life is nothing. To lose your soul is everything. This past year seems to have confronted our fear of death more so than any other year that I've been alive. And at the core of this fear is the fear of removal from this earth. It's a fear of removal from my current setup on this planet, God. It's a fear of removal from family and friends and jobs and stuff. But might I remind you that what we have here and now pales in comparison to what awaits on the other side of all of this. It pales. The third kind of fear that you see in verse 29, it's this fear of injury or getting hurt. It says in verse 29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So Jesus paints this picture for us of a sparrow that, that's wounded and falls to the ground. And in, in Jesus' day, people used to eat sparrows. They could buy them in a marketplace in Jerusalem, anywhere. And the irony is that the bird that everybody sings about and gets tattooed on their bodies nowadays <laughs> is pretty much the, most, the least expensive food you could buy in the marketplace at this time. It's cheap. You could get two sparrows for a penny. They were most often bought and eaten by the poor. And so think about the process of even killing these sparrows to get them to the market. They were either trapped or they were shot with a stone, right? Because obviously there were no guns. And in the process of catching them, these sparrows would be injured. But the sparrow, the least of these in the Jewish marketplace, 
had a purpose, and not one of them fell to the ground without God ordaining for that to happen. So what does that say about God's most prized creation in us? How much more does he care for us and ordain our beginning from our end if he knew the sparrows beginning from the end? And the point is that there are injuries that cause you and I hurt and pain that some of you are in the midst of right now, but we're often fearful of getting hurt. We live our lives captivated by fear. And maybe um, not the handful of you, maybe there's a handful of you who don't really care because you're like evil can evil, but we have this fear of injury. And actually, that's quite normal, right? Like growing up, my brother was evil can evil, and I was like the well thought out, mindful person, right? And so when we'd build like a snowboard jump somewhere, we'd build it, and then we'd be like, Shane, can you try it out? And Shane would be like, I got it, man, you know? He'd be the one to wreck hard. I was the one that was like very calculated. Well, if I, my calculations hold correct, you know, the first time you hit that, the snow's gonna sink and you're probably not gonna make it over the jump. And so I was the calculator, but my brother just went for it. But it's normal for us to have some level of fear in us about the things that are taking place around us. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't be afraid about that. You have nothing to worry about because God knows you and God loves you. God knows all the events and the happenings on this earth, even to the most minute detail. He knows when a single sparrow falls to the ground. He goes on to say in verse 30 that even the hairs of your head are all numbered, that he knows them all. He knows the amount of hair on your head. That's how intimately the God of the universe knows you. And so if God is so concerned for the sparrows that not one falls to the ground without his consent, how much more is he concerned about the most trifling details about each of us who are worth more to him than sparrows, who are the crown of his creation? He loves you. He knows you. He sees you. God's able to take all the injuries and all the pain that we've experienced as believers and work them out for his good. He can give them purpose, meaning, significance. He can give everything uh, uh, significance that happens to a person. But in the Bible, fear and faith, as we see them, are sort of these mutually exclusive things. The, the fear is the opposite of belief, and believing God actually eliminates fears. We see it in Scripture. And so when we believe that God is good and that he is in control of all the events and all the happenings on earth, the believer's supposed to not fear. The believer puts their trust in the love and the care of God. And so I want to look at a few instances that we've already even talked about in Scripture where faith stands in opposition to fear. Like, you look at Mark chapter 5, verse 36, which we covered a few weeks ago in Matthew's account, but Jesus says this. He says, do not fear, only believe. Don't fear, just have faith in me, is what he says. And we read this passage and read this passage in Matthew a few weeks ago, and there's this leader of a synagogue that comes to Jesus, and this leader pleads with Jesus to come heal his daughter who was sick. And before Jesus can actually get to the girl, some men bring this news that this little girl has died. And so imagine how Jairus felt at this moment. Like he missed it, like it was too late, like all hope was gone. But for Jesus, the situation was very different. And so Jesus says to Jairus, don't be fearful and despairing. Just believe that I'm able to restore her life. 
And so Jesus makes it clear to Jairus that in the face of these horrible circumstances that have hit him, he has to have faith. Only believe. Keep up a confidence in Jesus and depend on him and he will do what's best. Like if we can believe that God's power has no limit and that he loves us, what is there to fear? Because faith essentially dispels fear. The, the more you have faith, the less you will be fearful. And so faith stands in, op- in opposition to fear and to doubt. And so faith also stands opposed to trust and confidence in anything else besides Jesus. And the same thing you can see in Matthew 8, again, a couple months ago, where Jesus says to his disciples, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Like if you remember that passage, Jesus is in this boat with his disciples, this gnarly storm appears, and while the waves sweep over the boat, Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and the disciples wake him up, and what do they say? They say, we're going to drown, save us. And what does Jesus say to them? Why are you so afraid, you of little faith? So it implies that the disciples shouldn't have been afraid. They had no reason to fear. Instead, they should have trusted him. And it was because of their lack of faith that the disciples feared that they were about to drown. And it was for their lack of faith that they were rebuked by Jesus. And so again, we see that fear is this expression of our unbelief. And so John says it like this. There is no fear in love, he says in 1 John Chapter four, fear has no place in love. These two, fear and love, are in fact as incompatible as oil and water. But he goes on to say, but perfect love casts out fear. And then John goes on to point out the, the, the uh, point to the source of that perfect love in verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. That fear is cast out by this perfect love of God and that the solution to fear is not a change of circumstances. It's not getting rid of COVID, but it's a deep grounding in the love of God. You want your fear to be gone? Draw near to the Lord. Don't try to rid your circumstances. I mean, we're really good at that, aren't we? Something crazy is going on in our life and we're freaking out about it. And the first thing we do is to try to do whatever we can to mitigate the circumstances, to try to uh, eliminate the fear that we're feeling. And God's saying, what's wrong with drawing near to me? I mean, as we're singing this worship song this morning, prior to coming up here, I'm honestly, like, I felt tense coming into this morning and I'm singing that song and I'm thinking, like, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And we get to proclaim these truths that I'm not a slave to this. I'm not captivated by it. I'm not owned by it. I'm actually owned by Jesus. And so why would I give residency or real estate to something that doesn't know the amount of hairs on my head? And yet in the midst of the year that we're in, what are we owned by? The thing that couldn't count five hairs on your head, let alone a hundred of them or one of them, we're, we're owned by the thing that captivates our fear, that gets, our, our, gets us all worked up and gets us excited, but we aren't captivated by Jesus. And sometimes I'm like, what will it take for total captivation by Jesus for his church? In the midst of all we're going through right now, like what will the world see in us? Our ability to be completely owned by fear like they are? 
or our ability to stand in the midst of the most fearful circumstances that maybe our country's ever seen and proclaim that God is the one who owns my soul and my body. So John says, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And we have to recognize that fear is common among people. Like, I don't want to act like it just shouldn't exist. Like, even if you're Christians. In fact, I'd go as far to say that uh, in this life, fear will always coexist with faith, won't it? Always. Because if you were always certain, then you would not need faith at all. (laughs) So fear and faith sort of always coexist. Like, without an element of risk, there is no faith. And the risk can sometimes be what's scariest for us. It's uncertainty that freaks us out. And the uncertainty drives us to take care of things ourselves versus trust the Lord with the outcome. And the point that Jesus is making is I don't think he's trying to just eliminate our fear and say, man, you don't have enough faith. You need to walk out this door. You can't have an ounce of fear in your life at all. It's gone. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. Because our feelings can't be eliminated, right? They surface regardless of if we're followers of Jesus or not. However, even though we cannot control fear, we can actually learn to channel the fear in ways that make fear more likely to be helpful than toxic to our spiritual life. And the believer who confronts their fear will often find themselves growing into a faith that actually overcomes their fear. Like you come to a point where you're able to say that God deserves my trust. That that no matter how things appear at that time, no matter how scary the situation seems to be, I think the issue that faces every follower of Jesus who endures a trial can be summarized in two questions. One, will I trust God with my pain, my weakness, and my fear? And two, Or will I turn away from him in bitterness and anger? Those are your options. Trust him in it all or turn away from him and turn out bitter and angry. And I think Jesus encourages us to trust him in spite of our pain, in our fear, in spite of our incomplete understanding of his will. And then he tells us why we should trust him. Like, Three times in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, fear not. He's telling us that we should not be troubled in the midst of difficulties, that we should be prepared for trouble instead of frightened by trouble. And this sort of fearlessness comes when we truly trust God and have a strong faith in him. And so Jesus teaches us that a strong faith is founded in three things. In verse 26, faith is founded in the justice of God. People may slander me, People may tell all kinds of lies about me. And I can take it without fear because I have confidence in God's justice. I know that he will vindicate me. It's not for my doing. I know that he'll reveal the truth, that he'll vindicate those who walk in the truth, and that even if the truth is hidden, someday it will not be. Second is that faith is founded on the power of God. In verse 28, he says, don't be afraid of man because man's power is limited. 
Man can kill the body, but be afraid of God, God's power. Why? Because God has the, this unlimited power that he can actually take your body and your soul. He has the power to destroy the soul um, that man doesn't. And faith is confident in God's power, so we're not to fear men. And then the third thing is this, is that faith is founded in the love of God. Like you read verse 31, that God cares for the sparrows, that he cares for a bird. Imagine how much he cares for you who are much more valuable to him than two sparrows. That he loves you so much that he's concerned about every single hair on your head, that he cares for every event, every detail, every, even the most minute matters in a person's life. And so faith is absolutely confident about these three things concerning God. It's confident about God's justice, it's confident about God's power to save, and it's confident about God's love for us. And when we have that kind of faith, I'm asking you a question, what's left for us to fear? Is there anything left for us to fear? If we're confident in his justice that he'll take care of the things he says and he'll bring the truth to light, if we're confident in the fact that he has the power to save and we're confident in the fact that he loves us, what are we freaking out about? And he sort of wraps it up with one thing that I think you should be afraid of. A healthy fear of God. There's one thing that frightens somebody's faith. And it's the fear that God would not recognize you on that day when he comes back. That should scare us. We talk about the fear of God. The fear of God is this, the, the, this ability to like know that he's good and he's just. That he has the ability to take body and soul, but he still loves me as well and his tensions between the two. But the crazy thing about this is that We often talk about the fear of God as though it's like not even a big deal. And yet there's some of you in this room, and this might sound like I'm going like really hard, really fast. There's some of you in this room that can't in all confidence say that if Jesus was to come back tomorrow, that you'd spend eternity with him. And that should scare you. Because the God of the universe loves you enough to atone for your sins, to grant you forgiveness for your sins, so that when he comes back, you have an eternal home with him forever and ever and ever. And there's some of you in this room that can't in all confidence say that this morning. And so in verse 32 and 33, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this, the Lord says, Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. And so literally to confess Jesus is to publicly declare our allegiance to Jesus. It's to acknowledge our dependence on him for salvation. Like I'm not afraid of what people who persecute me think of me. Honestly, I could care less. What Jesus thinks of me is all that counts. And so when we stand for Jesus in tough situations, Jesus promises that he will reciprocate in an amazing way for you and I. That, that he will stand up for us 
before the Father, both now and at the final judgment. And this shows that faith looks into the future for you and I. The faith looks at the eternal realities. The, the, the people who criticize you today are gonna die, right? They're gonna pass away. The, the people who kill somebody will eventually die. Everything in this world will eventually pass away, but Jesus never passes away. God's eternal, and, and faith sees that, and that's why I'm not afraid to suffer persecution for Christ's sake, because faith takes hold of that which concerns eternity, not the present. It's concerned with one thing, to stand up for Jesus no matter what people think about me or do to me. And this is what Jesus is confronting with his disciples. Don't fear what people are gonna do to you or say to you because I'm greater than all of those people. Those people may take your life, those people will not take your soul. Fear the one who can actually choose where you spend eternity. Don't fear the one that's gonna blab at you and persecute you and sort of poke on your chest while you're on this life and annoy you all of your life. Fear the one who has the ability to send you to heaven eternally or for those that would deny him, send them to hell. And the person who fails to acknowledge Jesus is actually denying Jesus, believe it or not. like. A no answer is an answer. Christ can be denied in three ways. One, we can deny Jesus by his word. Like what we say with our lips either confesses or denies that Jesus is our Lord. Two, we can deny Jesus by act. Like how we behave either confesses or denies Jesus. What you believe about him. Three, we can deny Jesus by staying silent. And we have to remember that failure to speak up for Jesus, to, protect, to protest, protest against evil, actually is denial of Christ himself. And I had a couple really amazing instances in this last week where I was like, in the midst of my life, sitting there talking with somebody, dealing with even somebody else's issues and what they're going on in their life, when the Lord sort of interrupted it and brought somebody into it, and I'm like sitting there at this coffee shop, somebody's here today who was with me when this happened, and, uh, and this guy walks in and he sits down, and like from the minute he comes in, I'm just like, oh man, the Lord totally told me to go talk to this guy and, um, and pray for him. And so I wanted to talk to my friend. <laughs> I wanted to catch up on his life and the Lord had other plans and it turned into a good hour of like talking through this guy's life's issues and it was this really amazing divine circumstance where we were able to share Jesus with this man and pray for him and he called me two days later and like God's like stirring up and doing something odd in this guy's life and brought him here for a reason and as we talk about this whole idea of being the ones who would proclaim him from the mountaintops. Like, man, we're not even having to stand on the building with the megaphone and say, downtown Coeur d'Alene, you know, <laughs> turn to Jesus or lose your life. You know, it's like, we're not having to do that. We're sitting at a coffee shop, sipping on a cup of coffee in our fairly comfortable life, and God brings somebody else in there who's sipping on a cup of coffee, and he's like, 
I want to get a hold of that dude's heart. And we're like, eh, I'll take my coffee. Like, we're not even losing our life for it. But yet what he's asking of us is that we'd be willing to proclaim from the mountaintops. And what we do, how we respond, actually says what we believe and know is true about God. Are we confident in that this morning, church? Are you confident in that this morning? What is it that has your heart this morning? Do you find yourself seized in fear? Do you find yourself captivated by circumstances, whether in this world, in your family, in relationships that you have, whatever it is, do you find yourself given over to things that are not Jesus? So much so that these things rule you. And as Jesus states in this passage, fear the things that have the potential. Don't fear the things that have the potential to take your life on this side of heaven. Fear the thing that actually has the potential to dictate where you spend eternity. And when you look at fear in light of that, it's just like, this is stupid. Why am I fearing the things that I'm fearing when what I should be fearing is the God, God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ? I want to pray for you this morning and I ask you to bow your heads because I, I want to ask for you to respond. But I realize that there's many of you this morning, whether it be this last year that we've had or even the holiday season or whatever it is, you just find your heart seized by fear and at the core of that fear is just the uncertainty of what lies ahead that you can't reconcile with the fact that God's in control of it and this morning as we were singing that song that worship song I just kept thinking like God just wants to set you free like he didn't pay a price so you could live in captivity he paid a price so you could live in freedom and if you here this morning and you find yourself in a place literally seized by fear, captivated by something other than God, would you be bold enough to raise your hand this morning and say, I feel that. I sense that. And I want to pray for you. Just keep your hands up. Like in all boldness, it's do not be ashamed about this. Like Jesus wants to free you this morning. Jesus, I pray for those who are here this morning who've raised their hands and they've said they find themselves in a place this morning seized and captivated by fear. And we know that perfect love casts out fear. And so I pray in an instant while we're praying that your love would break through, Jesus, that your love would break through and be stronger than the fear and the uncertainty and all the things, the scenarios that are playing through in their heads, that your love would break through, that you'd convince them this morning, God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus, and that this morning, God, your church would not be a church who lives their lives handcuffed, but a church who actually lives their lives in total freedom as a result of the God of the universe who sent his son to die on a cross for us, Jesus, so that we would not have to live in shackles, but we could live in complete freedom. And so I pray this morning, God, that we would walk in that, that as we even enter into this Christmas season, that we acknowledge it for what it is, that it's not about the trees and the gifts and all the stuff that we'll partake in. It's about the freedom that was offered to us through a baby in a manger. 
And I pray that this season, God, may be unlike any others in the midst of the chaos of the world we live in, that that baby in a manger would represent so much more to us than just the stories we've heard and the movies we watched and the things we've read, that it would actually represent to us complete liberation and freedom in the name of Jesus because of what that baby would go on to do on our behalf so that we could walk in the freedom that God himself has granted us. Jesus, I pray your blessing over your church this morning. I pray that she would shine. I pray as we leave here that we would be the proclaimers of righteousness, the proclaimers of your freedom, of your gospel, your kingdom to the rest of our city, not so that we can be a bunch of religious freaks, but so that we can see others that are living their lives in shackles find themselves free in the life of Christ because of the gift that Jesus offered to us through his death and resurrection on that cross, Jesus. And so I pray your blessing upon each person in this room this morning. I pray as they go that your face would shine upon them and you would shine through them, Jesus, and you grant them your peace and your joy and your hope, God, and that as we leave this place today, that the city of Coeur d'Alene, that the dark places would become, would begin to light up as your believers begin to step into the areas of our city that are bogged down the most and need freedom, Jesus. I thank you, God, that we get to be proponents of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.